Welcome to Terminal Talk, a podcast on mainframe and mainframe related issues. This is Frank. Issues? Stuff. Things. Okay. All right. <laughs> Fair enough. Switching up for the new year. Yeah, yeah, you know. That's cool. Trying something different. Yep. So you're Frank. I was. I'm Jeff. And we have a really cool guest today, Michael Jordan, who has been the distinguished engineer responsible for pervasive encryption. That a good enough description? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, in in general, uh, my my scope is a little broader. So, you know, IBM Z security. One of the the big things that I've been doing over the last couple of years has been around pervasive encryption. So we've we've actually um, talked around pervasive encryption on this show, like for probably ten or fifteen episodes. Mm-hmm. We we we've been waiting for you to tell us what what the hell is this. Pervasive encryption about yeah, so you were probably better off just talking around it, but let, we can we can move ahead anyway. <laughs> Dive right in. <laughs> so, w- one of the things that I you know when I go talk with you know our clients, one of the things that I like to to, to share with them is you know pervasive encryption is not any one thing. Um, from my point of view, it's a it's a much as much about you know a a cultural shift that we're trying to drive it you know you know as anything else. Um, and and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, we can't stand when you when you look at cybersecurity, when you look at what's happening, you know, in in the market and in, in the industry, and and the the attacks that are going on on you know almost a daily basis, uh, the notion that we can stand still uh, with with our cybersecurity practices and technology, you know, I think is a losing proposition. So, so it's kind of interesting that you talk about it that way, because it's not just hey, we're going to encrypt some stuff and um, your life will be better. And we've had uh, Chad has been on the podcast more than once saying something very similar. Yes, because uh, we always start our conversations with him saying, "I've got you know, PE. I don't need to do anything, right?" And it's great because little smoke comes out of his ears and stuff. It's it's fun. Yeah, <laughs> I wish I was there to see that, but. <laughs> Yeah. So, so, and with that in mind, you know, and with that as the backdrop, uh, you know, w- when we looked at doing, you know, pervasive encryption, we were really focused on with with you know the notion of let, let's let's raise the bar, let's start to change the culture in terms of data protection for, you know, our clients' enterprises and in their Z environments. We looked at okay, you know, what's keeping organizations today from using, you know, encryption as you know, a, a data protection mechanism. Because when you look at the statistics and you look at the data, you know, it, it's it's very clear that encryption plays a key role in data protection and, and can help organizations, you know, in, in the event of data breaches. So when you, you, and you look at that in the context of other statistics around the use of encryption, you know, only about 2% of data globally is encrypted within you know or within data centers. That two percent figure does that include the self-encrypted hard drives? Uh, yeah, they don't break out whether or not uh, you know it's not clear whether or not self-encrypting drives are are included. Um, the the only you know self I, I think self-encrypting drives are great. I think everybody should be using that. But in terms of you know what are the threats that 
you know, self-encrypting drives protect against, um, you know, it, it's not going to help in the event of, of very typical data breaches. Right. Um, and let me explain a little bit more about what I mean by that. Um, you know, a self, you know, self-encrypting drives, whether it's, you know, your laptop or whether it's, you know, on a uh, in a data center with a, you know, a disk array, uh, what it really protects against is the media you know, physically leaving the data center. Once the disk is gets powered on and is served a key, you know, any any system or user connecting to that device All right. gets the data back in the clear, and there's no authentication of either the system or the user. So within the data center, it's really not protecting, you know, the data. It's, it's really, you know, protecting that data in the event that it walks out of the data center. Right. What, it, what does it – so a typical uh, attack vector within a data center is somebody who – has access to the system for one reason or another, but maybe shouldn't have access to the data? Yeah, I don't know if there is really the notion of a, a typical, um, you know, a, attack vector because th- there's lots of different attack vectors. Um, but one thing that we do know is uh, attackers like to go after um, privileged, you know, users and and the reason and, and try to compromise their IDs. And, and the reason that that's the case is if you can get access to a privileged user and and the, the notion of a privileged user uh, can be varied. So it could be a system administrator that has, you know, kind of elevated privileges that can get to lots of things. But it could also be, um, you know, a user that's responsible for an application that has access to lots of sensitive data. And if you can compromise either of those types of, of identities, then getting data out of the system becomes a trivial job. So is, is pervasive encryption something that operates at the, is it the LPAR level, the physical hardware box level, or the Sysplex level, or how, how do I, uh, you know, wh- where is the, what's the, the field for it? So there's, there's, Two main things that we're trying to achieve with with pervasive encryption: one is you know protection of data in flight, and the other is is protection of data at rest. And uh, how we are, how we're accomplishing that, um, you know, for protection of data in flight, we're relying on you know the existing uh, protocols. So we we didn't introduce any new protocols for that. So we're relying on things like TLS, relying on things like IPsec. Mm-hmm. But what we're trying to do in, in recognizing that most organizations aren't terminating their network security sessions all the way to their IBM Z servers, whether it's a you know ZOS at the you know uh, server, whether it's a Linux on Z server, or whether it's a Linux One server, and so a lot of the, in and this is part of changing the culture, you know, with Z14, you know, we made huge investments in. Uh, our encryption technology that's built into the microprocessor. And, and the whole idea of that is we need to lower the cost of encryption to eliminate that as a barrier, right? So, you know, you know, changing culture, it takes a combination of things. It takes, you know, introducing technology that eliminates barriers and changing the mindset of our clients. So for data in flight, you know, that's our, pr- our approach. For, for data at rest, you know, the, the, the notion here is basically to integrate encryption into the operating system uh, so that we can encrypt, you know, data on a very coarse scale. It's kind of important um, the way you, you mentioned that. I want to make sure we underline that because a lot of the capability that we're talking about has been around on the platform for a while. But what what you've really been able to do is, um, one, change the performance characteristics, 
and two, I think the 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 price point on, under which this can happen. Before it was something you could do, but it was either too hard or, or, or thought of as too expensive to do. And you really change that in a very significant way. Right. And and there's I think there's multiple aspects of of the cost of enabling encryption and, and part of why organizations are not using encryption on a broad scale today. One is, you know, what we've been just talking about, which is the operational cost. And that's where, you know, the, the Z14 technology and investment in our cryptographic hardware comes into play. But the other aspect of it is what does it cost to, to you know, what are the challenges for actually enabling and turning on encryption, you know, from a uh, from a you know human resources point of view? And, you know, what we found was, you know, there's a couple different ways that organizations have been trying to solve that problem. One of them is uh, to actually change applications, um, to add encryption directly to their application. And while you know, I recognize the value in that, and 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 don't you know um, disagree with you know the thinking behind. Hey, if I could do that, you know, I, I'm doing encryption at a very high level in the system, and the data, you know, is encrypted as it flows through the entire stack, and I'm in control of it um, of when I do the encryption and when I do the decryption. So from that point of view, that you know, there's there's reasons why that's appealing. Um, what organizations find out very quickly is going down that path um, for most organizations is cost prohibitive if you're trying to do it, you know, at more than just you know a very small scale. Uh, and and you know some of the examples that we've seen is you know organizations have tens of thousands of applications and it's going to cost probably at least fifty hours per application and then you multiply that by you know a labor rate and you're talking you know tens of millions if not hundreds of millions of dollars to to turn on encryption and again for most organizations that's a non-starter right, right? so that's that was one of the things that we looked at um, another one was uh, around you know. The notion of doing encryption on a selective scale, um, so encrypting only sensitive data, and 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 again, organizations are doing that because they're trying to narrow the focus of of what they have to encrypt, uh, and they're saying, well, I can't afford to encrypt everything, so I'm going to only encrypt my sensitive data. Well, the first challenge of that is, if you're only encrypting your sensitive data, what do you what's what's the starting point? Mm. And, and that's you have to go find, uh, you know, identify and classify all that sensitive data. And as it scary as it seems, you know, many organizations have told me point blank, you know, we don't know where all of our sensitive data is. So, you know, cl- d- identifying and classifying sensitive data then becomes a barrier to encrypting and protecting your data. And so, you know, looking at those two, you know, you know, human resources challenges, you know, the, the notion of pervasive encryption and the concept that we're promoting is, okay, you know, one, encryption should be part of the infrastructure and not part of the application. Mm. Um, and, and two, uh, instead of trying to find every instance of sensitive data, organizations can do a data mapping at a very high level and say, okay, here's an application I know I have sensitive data associated with it, or or here's a database. I know I have sensitive data associated with it. Encrypting all the data for the application, or encrypting all the data for the database. And in a nutshell, right? That's what you know. When we talk about per- pervasive encryption, th- that's the idea and the concept. Yeah, and it, it, it's really important uh, that last piece talking about the fact that 
it's primarily the job of the infrastructure and not the application program. Uh, I've always maintained um, that application programmers should not be responsible for security because it's really not their job, right? Their focus is to get stuff out quickly, and uh, I want that function out as quickly as I possibly can, and and security is is always in the way of doing things sure. quickly. Yeah, and and the other another aspect of that that you know we didn't, we didn't talk about earlier is once you go down that path, you're sort of locked in and 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 you're you're married to that you know that approach. And when you look at what's happening in the IT industry and even in you know in the regulatory space, uh, it, it's a moving target, right? Uh, the encryption algorithms and standards are always evolving and changing, and if you've you know if you've imp- implemented it in your application, uh, you know if there's a, a change in regulatory mandates and you've used a 128-bit key and now you have to go to a 256-bit key, you've got to go ch- re- change and retest your application. If it's part of the infrastructure, um, you know you, you might have to do a little bit of testing, but you can switch to it. You know, without having to make you know massive amounts of, of application changes, and you know, I don't know if you guys have done any podcasts on on quantum computing yet, but you know, that's going to be another topic where uh, you know we're going to really need to look at the, the encryption uh, that we're using you know across the board and 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 you know evolve that encryption, and so you know that's another case where you know the the application would would necessarily have to change. So Z, ZUS is kind of like the land of a thousand different data types. Yep. Are they all covered by pervasive encryption? So today I would say we, we're probably covering, um, I, I would guess, around 90% of, of client okay. data. So we, we are, we're protecting um, the data types that are most commonly associated with application. So if you have a Kix vSAM application, um, you know, we cover vSAM data. We're cover and, and vSAM uh, also gives us our DB2 databases and, and will and give us our IMS databases. So, you know, with that one data type, you know, we, we get a very, you know, right. very broad coverage. Uh, we also cover flat files or, you know, sequential data as well. Um, and, and that's what you see typically associated with batch workloads. Mm-hmm. So by covering those, um, you know, we get we get br- very broad coverage. Uh, and we are we have a roadmap to, you know, over time, you know, add additional data types, uh, you know, to start to start covering that, you know, that last, you know, 10%. But, and, and the idea is, and, and the reason that we took that approach was, you know, we, we did the ones that were highest impact and, and lowest cost for us to implement, right. uh, get them to the market, allow organizations to start uh, putting them into to practice. And, and even though, you know, we've eliminated barriers, uh, you know, to adopting encryption, you know, there there's, will still be effort required to get these, uh, you know, to those data, that data encrypted. Uh, they'll have to, um, you know, test and validate, you know, make sure all their applications are, are continuing to function as expected. We don't we don't anticipate a problem, but nobody's going to turn on encryption and not, in, and not <laughs> test right. it. And we don't want them to do that either. No one wants right? to ransomware their own box. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, and so the idea would be that, you know, clients are off doing that. And in parallel, you know, we're going to, uh, you know, extend and enhance the, the data types that are supported, and and as they finish, you know, what what's available today, uh, you know, they can then turn on additional data types going forward. 
I, I heard that we have pervasive encryption over the coupling uh, facility data. How, how does that work? Okay, so l- let me first start talking about you know why why we did that. Um, and if you think about you know what we were talking about before around you know the goal and objective of pervasive encryption, which is being able to encrypt all data in flight and at rest. Uh, and and if you're a visual you know thinker, one of the best ways to kind of think about that is if you if you think of a Z box, um, you know whether it's Linux one you know you know, Linux on Z or, or you know, uh, or ZOS or, or a combination of those, you know, our goal and our mission is, you know, you know, we've got lots of different types of connections coming to the, the box. We've got network connections, you know, we've got our FICON connections, uh, and we have, you know, c- coupling connections. So there's lots of data coming to and leaving the box. Our, our goal and objective is being able to encrypt and protect all the all bytes of data as they're coming to and, and, and going to, to the box. And, you know, it will be a journey. Um, but coupling is another example of, you know, data that's coming to and leaving, you know, the perimeter of the box. So, you know, it, it was our thinking that, hey, we should provide a mechanism for encrypting and protecting that data as well as, you know, data that's leaving on the network or data that's leaving uh, into the storage area network or the sand fabric. Probably some uh, pretty important data going in out of there, too. <laughs> sure, yeah. So, you know, the, since it's a shared memory, you know, um, it's it's commonly used for, uh, you know, middleware, uh, you know, solutions like DB2. So, you know, all of the data that you're pushing through DB2 will will, will get pushed through the coupling facility. Uh, it's used for, you know, inter-system communication. So lots of cases uh, uh, where, you know, data that's flowing, uh, you know, into and out of the system, uh, you know, are, you know, are in the coupling facility at, at some point in time. Mm-hmm. So, but, but are my... Uh are my WLAN policies encrypted as well, or I mean, how how do you determine what gets encrypted there how in the you, coupling facility? Yeah. yeah. So the the way that works is uh, we provide encryption for the the coupling facilities today have three different types of structures. Um, there's uh, cache structures, and that's what you know DB2 uses as basically a large shared memory uh, for the different data sharing members of the DB2 group. Uh, and then there's there's list structures, and these are commonly used for um, things like MQ uh, for, you know, the, the MQ messages get, you know, s- stuck out into these coupling facility lists. And then there's lock structures, which are used for, you know, serialization um, uh, solutions such as DB2 locking and, and also for uh, GRS. Uh, uh, so the coupling encryption allows protection of both the cache and list structures. Uh, we don't protect lock structures, and that's because there's not any data associated with those. So there's nothing, there's nothing, um, y- you know, sensitive associated with those. So in terms of list and lock or list and cache structures, uh, really the installation can, you know, kind of pick and choose how they want to approach that. They could uh, turn on encryption for every list and cache structure, or they could uh, be more selective and say, well, I only want to encrypt my DB2 structure. So they have, they have the flexibility to pick and choose. And basically in the CFRM policy, you indicate whether it's going to be an encrypted structure or not. And the system will generate a key and basically manage this, the encryption uh, across the sysplex. Seems like uh, there's a real 
need for managing a lot of different keys to make this work. Um, how hard is it for a client to get started with all of this? Yeah, so what we're finding, um, and, and this has been a learning experience for us as we've rolled this out, is, you know, uh, encryption key management and especially uh, encryption key management at an enterprise level is um, is a, a gap with a lot of, in terms of skills for, for a lot of organizations. Um, and so putting a, a good set of encryption practices and, and or I'm sorry, encryption key um, practices uh, and tooling in place is, a, is an important step in, in the process of, of evolving to, you know, a pervasive encryption. Yeah, the actual pervasive encryption probably isn't nearly as difficult as as getting that whole key management. That's right. And one of the things that we found is um, that organizations don't necessarily have, you know, the roles and responsibilities, um, you know, in place for, you know, enterprise key management. And, and you know, what, now as I go out and talk with clients, you know, uh, one of the first things that I start talking about and, and focusing on is, you know, making sure, you know, what are you doing for key management? And, you know, you know what are what are the roles and responsibilities you have? And, and really get them focused on that, you know, and you can start doing that before you even, you know, start looking at encrypting, you know, one byte of data. So um, switch gears a little bit here. You've been doing the security thing for quite some time. Did you uh, did you start your career focused on security, or was that something you evolved to? So I actually started my career uh, in in security. I was in uh, RackF. I started IBM in 1989, and I started in in RackF development actually. Um, so yeah. you've been a security guy your entire career. For the most part, I I have um, had a mix of experiences in my career. So after working in RACF for you know about ten years, um, I actually went off and and spent uh, you know a handful of years in the parallel Sysplex team, um, you know, and worked on uh, things like rebuild and and system managed duplexing, um, and you know. That was a great experience for me as well. <laughs> but yeah, but you just had to come back and I did. <laughs> so then I came back and worked on, uh, you know, encryption and, and crypto probably for another, um, I would say, uh, five years uh, before I had an opportunity to take an international assignment. Oh really? Where'd you go for your international? Assignment? I spent uh, four and a half years wow. um, in in Beijing. Uh, you know, working with uh, the large banks over there, uh, and and I actually got brought over there to work on uh, you know parallel Sysplex and and help uh, the 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 banks over there scale their IT infrastructures, you know, for you know to meet their growing you know demands. So that that certainly kind of drove the the whole enterprise perspective uh, as as you went back to do uh, this. Pervasive encryption stuff, really understanding 
how people use the system was probably pretty important. Yeah, so I, so I think that's absolutely true, and I, and I think uh, it, it would be great if everybody had a, a chance to go and. Uh, the, the the role that I had in China was a was a client facing role. I was doing you know pre sales. I was doing post sales. I was on site for um, you know hardware upgrades. I was on site for operating system upgrades, uh, and I got to see you know uh, you know what happens you know from a sales point of view. Um, how our clients are putting you know the the functions that we deliver into practice and, and, and turning them on and and you know see what it takes to go through you know a zos upgrade and see what it takes to go through a hardware upgrade you know it would be ideal you know if everyone in the development organization had a, a chance to re- experience experience that right so so how hard was it to to go from being in the lab to being in the field and then how hard was it to go from being in the field back in the lab? Because that's a pretty rare experience, Yes. Yeah, right? So I, I guess I like, you know, I like challenges. Um, you know, I, I, like to, I like trying new things. I like doing new things. Um, and going into a client-facing role was a lot harder than I expected. Um, you know, and... I, I, I don't know if this is a common thing, but, you know, I think a lot of times um, we think in, in the lab that we have the tougher job in, in, in IBM. Um, after you go and get immersed in, um, you know, in a client-facing role uh, where you're, you know, accountable for what's what's taking place, um, you realize that it, that's not necessarily the case, um, right. that, that, you know, a lot of a lot of the folks out in, in the field and, and even our clients, um, you know, face very difficult challenges. And and one of the big differences is, you know, typically in a development type of a role, um, your focus is going to be very narrow, and you only have to worry about, you know, your little piece. Uh, when you go on to take a, a you know a, a field facing role, um, you, you're expected to know everything about, you know. Anything you know, ZOS or or you know, yeah. IBM Z related. Yeah, you're, you're IBM. You're IBM, <laughs> and you know, saying I don't know, you know, is a lot harder thing. So in many cases, you know, you would say you you would you know go talk with the client, understand the problem, and then have to go back and and you know what was interesting is you know and and what what was really helpful for me is you know having been in the lab before I went and did this for you know 25 years. Um, or 20, 22 years, I had a lot of contact. So, you know, when there was a specific area, I could go to the person and, 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 and really rely on them and get their help. Right. But then going from that kind of wide, being responsible for a bunch of different things, getting to look at the world in a very kind of um, broad perspective, how hard was it to go back into the lab and have that much less broad perspective? Uh, so, I, I wouldn't say that it was it was hard. Um, I would it, it was it was definitely an adjustment going back to that. Um, but I also think that you know, and and this is you know this is one of those um, you know things. You know, a lot of people worry about you know what their career path is and you know making making the right decisions. And, and I and I think you know the one, if I was to give advice to somebody, what I would say is you know don't don't stress it right because everything you do, right you know along the way, um, you know whatever that experience is, 
it will add value and, and help you in the next thing that you're going to do. Uh, uh, and as it turns out that, you know, the, the role that I took coming back uh, was, you know, driving and leading this pervasive encryption, uh, you know, initiative. And it wasn't just for, you know, ZOS. You know, it was for VM. It was for Linux. It was for, you know, ZOS. And, and it encompassed both the hardware, you know, and the software. Right. And so, you know, a lot of what I, you know, I learned, you know, in the field, you know, gave me a, a broader understanding of the system. And, and, and more importantly, um, you know, thinking about, you know, the challenges and in, in the experiences that clients have, you know, enabling new capabilities, right, you know, that also sticks with you and you recognize, okay, you know, if we're going to deliver something to the market and it's going to have value, right, you know, it has to be consumable, right? right. And, and knowing, you know, and, and experiencing that firsthand is very different from, you know, getting client feedback on it. So, uh, what's what's in the future? What can you tell us? What, what if if you were given um, carte blanche to do whatever you wanted to do from a security perspective? What would be the next thing to attack? So, there's there's a couple areas that that you know that I'm thinking about and and um, you know starting to look at. First is one of the things that we heard, you know, as we went and talked with. Um, our clients, and in particularly when we talked with clients where where their role was enterprise wide, whether it was an enterprise architect, whether it was a CIO, whether it's a CISO, you talk to them about pervasive encryption. They're like, okay, yeah, this is great, but um, I'm worried about you know the, my whole enterprise, right? How do I get you know how do I get this for my entire enterprise? So mm. um, one of the things that we're looking at is you know okay now with what we delivered around Z14 and, and pervasive encryption, we can protect data basically within the context of the Z environment. Uh, how do we help you know so going forward? How do we help clients protect data you know, you know across the enterprise uh, on a on a much broader scale? So that's that's one of the things I think is 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 absolutely critical. And why that's important and why Z, I think, plays an, an important role in that is, you know, in many cases, Z is one of their critical data sources where data is getting pushed around the enterprise. So, you know, being able to protect that not only within the Z environment but, but across the enterprise is, is a huge challenge for our clients. Uh, and then the other uh, area that I think requires uh, a lot of attention and focus um, and, and really consumes a lot of cycles for our clients is, you know, how do you... Uh, lock down and, and configure your systems in a secure way. And, and you know, it's both it audit that and monitor that. Uh, and, you know, as you add new capabilities, right, you know, how do you make sure that, you know, the, the system is, is locked down and hardening? So, so simplifying that processing and adding additional capabilities to, you know, both make the, you know, the, the system more secure by default and helping organizations understand, you know, how their system is configured and, you know, yeah. Well, thanks, uh uh, Mike, for coming in. I know it's really cold out there today, um, so coming all the way over here f for this is was a big deal. Thanks a lot for coming. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Old Man Charlie, run us out. You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at TerminalTalk.net. That's contact at TerminalTalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence, signing off.